Hi, I'm Azilia. And I'm Iqbal. And this is the He Says. She Says. <laughs> they Say, they say Podcast. podcast. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I was going to say, it says episode now. <laughs> So I thought you guys might be used to it. Oh, it's... we got a salty guest today. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's just an observation. Okay. Okay. So welcome everyone and thanks for tuning into this episode of the He Says, She Says, They Say podcast. I'm your host, Iqbal, here with Azilia and special guest, Arif Siddiqui, co-founder and CEO of Kestrel, a financial app that helps Muslims budget, save, and invest in line with the values and teachings of Islam. Welcome to the show, Arif. Thank you very much. Assalamu alaikum. Really good to be here. Salam. Thank you. So, Arif, the reason we wanted you to join us on today's episode of the show is, well, as of our recording today, it is April 12, 2021, and across the world in a number of countries, we will be entering the first day of Ramadan tomorrow, which means the first evening should be tonight. Is that the case for you guys in the UK, Arif? I believe so. We, it hasn't been announced, but I think in all likelihood it's going to be tomorrow. I know Malaysia has already announced. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Malaysia just announced yeah. it, I think, and like the Council of American Islamic Relations, Islamic Society of North America, they've announced it for the US as well. So I guess my first day of fasting will be tomorrow. Okay, I guess it's most likely, hopefully, it will be tomorrow. So yeah, we're entering the month of Ramadan, and obviously, besides the fasting, this is also zakat season for those of us who can afford to pay our share. And that got us thinking about topics of wealth distribution and redistribution, wealth inequality, wealth creation, consumption, that sort of thing. And Arif, Azilia, I'm sure you guys have been hearing more and more about this issue of growing wealth inequality around the world. Mm -hmm. Recently, Oxfam put out a study that found around 2,000 of the world's billionaires hold more wealth than 60% of the world's population, mm -hmm. despite last year's pandemic, well, the still ongoing pandemic that's going on around the world. Forbes estimated that billionaires collectively grew their wealth by 20% or by $1.9 trillion in 2020. Mm -hmm. And of course, we've had really popular figures like U.S. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, mm -hmm. who claimed that billionaires shouldn't exist and that every billionaire is a policy failure. We had Democratic presidential frontrunner Bernie Sanders announcing that he would get rid of billionaires when he was running for the nomination last year. So all of that said, Arib, when we first reached out to you, we mentioned mm -hmm. even with these studies and these topics becoming hot button issues recently, mm -hmm. we've not heard much about this topic from an Islamic point of view. Mm -hmm. And so if we wanted to look at these issues of wealth distribution, wealth inequality within the context of Islam, where should we start the discussion? So it's really interesting. I should preface this conversation by saying that I'm in no way an Islamic scholar. However, I do rely on Kestrel's own internal Sharia scholar, who's Mufti Faraz Adam, who we've spoken about a number of times with these topics. And it's really interesting to see that point of view. I think this is an issue that's often thrown around in our communities. The idea that wealth and faith cannot and do not mix. Uh, that you shouldn't really be pursuing worldly affairs or dunya yeah. at the expense of deen or the hereafter. I think that's quite common regardless of whatever culture you're a part of. We often hear that. Yeah. I mean, it leads to a lot of people telling each other or their families that it's not the right thing to try and be too ambitious, to grow your business or to grow your wealth too big and try to amass too much wealth. Mm -hmm. And I think partly this is because there are so many warnings in Quran and in the Hadith about the warning of wealth, how it can lead to a lot of pride 
divide, how it can lead to corruption. And, you know, I'm drawn to the story of the two gardens in Surah Al-Qaf, which is about the man who's blessed with a lot of wealth and a lot of beautiful gardens. And it leads to him actually beginning to deny the day of judgment or that his wealth will ever come to an end. And in fact, he believes that Allah loves him more than other people because of that. So it's that kind of internal arrogance that is bred within him. And there's a lot of other examples of Quran and Hadith which warn against some of the issues with wealth. And I think that this is really a misnomer. I think it's often interpreted poorly mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. And I really do feel, and I know others do feel the same way, so there's nothing wrong with gaining wealth and using it to the best of your abilities as long as you're doing it in the right way. Mm -hmm. And there's a really great example from the Quran, which I'd love to draw upon here, which mm -hmm. is it's all about the dua that was made by Sulaiman al-Salam. Yep or the Prophet Solomon. Yeah. And it's one of my favorite parts of the Quran here, where it's in Surah Sa'd, which is chapter 38, and specifically verse 35. And I'll just read the translation because my Arabic is, the pronunciation is not great. <laughs> I'm not going to risk that on the podcast. <laughs> uh, so the translation from verse 35, chapter 38, Surah Al-Sa'd is, Master, forgive me and give me the gift of kingdom that is not even appropriate for anyone who comes after me. You are the one who continuously gives gifts. Mm. Yeah. So it's really interesting, and there's quite a few things to break down there. So firstly, Sulaiman al-Islam is asking for forgiveness, mm -hmm. and it's really important to note that. And secondly, he asks for something that seems really interesting. He's asking for something that sounds a lot like dunya. Hmm. He's asking for the gift of kingdom, which seems to go against, okay, this is a prophet of Allah who's asking for something that is, you know, just seems completely different from deen or from the hereafter. And what I love about this dua is that firstly, he asks for forgiveness. And as human beings, our time on this earth is, of course, finite. We can only do so much before our time is up. Mm -hmm. However, there are things that we can do after we are gone to help us earn reward and forgiveness when we're gone. And that is known as Sadhikai Jariya. Sadhikai Jariya can exist in the form of our children and what our children do for us and what they go on to become. But it can also exist in the form of your wealth and what your wealth is doing for you and how it's benefiting other people. Hmm. And Allah has given different people different blessings. Yeah. If you look at all of the prophets from the Quran, from Yusuf salam, who could interpret dreams, Isa salam, or, or Jesus who could perform miracles, right? Yeah. Sulaiman salam, his gifts everyone knows about and that he was given the gift of rulership. Yeah. He was exceptional at ruling, but most importantly was that not only was he able to rule, but he was able to rule without falling into corruption, mm. which is a common weakness which anyone in a position of leadership often has to face mm. and try to overcome. Yeah. Sulaiman al-Islam recognized the strength that he had been given. Yeah. Once he had recognized it and identified it, he asked Allah if he could have more of it so that he could put it to the service of Allah's deen and to leave a legacy behind. Yeah. As long as it doesn't corrupt you and you're putting it to good use, then by all means, ask for more of it. And really, I see a, a real analogy with wealth. There's nothing wrong with using your skills to amass wealth and make money if you're using it for the right reasons. Mm. Wealth can be a blessing or it could be a test. Mm. And which one it is depends on how you're earning it, how you're spending it, and how you're using that money. And I think that's an important part of the argument, which is often left behind yeah. when it comes to amassing wealth. Because let's be honest, right? There's a huge, huge disparity of wealth. I mean, you mentioned the Oxfam report, but another statistic out there is the disparity of wealth between Muslims and other groups around the world. On average, Muslims are about 20% poorer hmm. than the rest of the world. There's only one Muslim-owned company in the top 100 companies in the whole world, and that's Saudi Aramco. 
Right. I think we do have a duty to do better and also to amass more wealth to leave that legacy behind, especially if you have the skills to do it. Yeah. So that's my take on it. I see. That's very insightful, Arif. Thank you so much for sharing that knowledge with us. And there is a sad truth that even though wealth can be a blessing, it has to, it does have a hint of danger, <laughs> depending on what and how it's used. Because not everyone can manage wealth wisely. It's very natural for every person to want to live a comfortable life, but you know sometimes those blessings come attached to the greatest trials. And affluence comes with a cost, basically. Maybe Arib, you'd like to share with us on your recent startup and the exciting project that you have in line. Yeah, so I'm the founder and the CEO of an app in the UK called Kestrel.、Mm-hmm. We help Muslims to budget, to save, and to invest、mm-hmm. in line with their values.、Mm-hmm. So basically, to do all of the things that we were just talking about.、Mm-hmm. In that, with Muslims, they often face a problem, and it was a problem that I faced as a British Muslim growing up here in the UK. In that, when it came to achieving my financial goals,、mm-hmm. it was very hard to do that without feeling like I had to compromise something. Whether it was my religious belief and trying to avoid interest, or whether it was just looking for something that was convenient and also cheap to use,、mm. there were Islamic solutions which were out there. But、mm. it was always, always felt like I had to sacrifice some cost or sacrifice some convenience in order to use them, and it didn't really sit right with me. So that was the basis behind Kestrel and founding Kestrel. We actually just launched last week、mm. at the time of recording of this podcast、mm. our new app, which helps people to budget, and we're launching a whole bunch of other things in Ramadan as well, like. An investment marketplace, and quite timely for Ramadan, we partnered with National Zakat Foundation in the UK to launch a zakat calculator, so you can calculate and donate zakat、nice. directly through Kestrel. Wow, that's so, yeah, that's what I do. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's so good. Congratulations. No, thank you. No, th- I mean we've got a long way to go on it.、Yeah. This is just the beginning, but inshallah,、um, yeah. this year we are really, really looking to help a lot of people. And that、yeah. kind of disparity in wealth that we talked about is really pronounced in the UK specifically.、Yeah. There's been studies done by By Muslim Council of Britain and also Muslim Census. So shout out to those guys.、Mm-hmm. But they've really found that Muslims represent some of the lowest socio-economic groups in the UK, British Pakistanis and British Bangladeshis specifically.、Mm-hmm. And they've been really, really impacted by lockdown in the UK as well,、mm-hmm. because by coronavirus.、Yeah. They're much more likely, because of the nature of their jobs, tending to be more manual, much more likely to have been furloughed or to have lost their jobs entirely during this period.、Mm-hmm. So it's really impacted them more, which is why this is really, really being pushed to the forefront. And that's why. Personal finance, just the basics from budgeting, saving,、mm. investing. Financial literacy is a problem for everyone, not just、yeah. Muslims, but for Muslims, it's compounded by Islamic financial literacy. Right.、Yes. And as a Muslim,、yeah. Alhamdulillah, I'm proud to say I'm a practicing Muslim. I、mm. pray five times a day. I observe my faith in every aspect of my life. But when it came to my finances.、Mm. I didn't really know much, and I thought maybe I'm just alone in this. Maybe this is my own ignorance. But I was studying for an MBA at the University of Cambridge. We did a nationwide survey as part of our final project for the MBA. We surveyed a thousand Muslims around the country, and I found I really, really wasn't alone. Ninety、mm. percent of people said that they acknowledged that there was a problem here, and they wanted to find an Islamic financial solution. But fewer than twenty-three percent of people were actually using any kind of Islamic solution whatsoever. And the reasons were they didn't know what existed for them. They were really put off by the lack of convenience of the products, not having an app, not having a decent website, anything like that,、mm. and also because they were too expensive. So that was the moment where we realized we've got to do something about this.、Mm. So yeah, th- that was the thing. Arif, so earlier you mentioned the statistic that Muslims are, as a whole, twenty percent. 
poorer than the average population. I guess you shared some statistics as well mm. about the state of Muslims in the UK. And we can see that across the board in Malaysia as well. I think of the top 10 richest people in Malaysia, only one is a Muslim. Oh, really? Yeah, we're underrepresented in terms of stock ownership in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And I guess earlier you mentioned that there has been this conflation of wealth with the dunya that somehow there's a choice you have to make between the here after and the here today. And so, Arib, has this view of wealth always been in the Muslim community since, I don't know, the time of the Prophet? Or has that changed to where it is today at some point? So it's really interesting because, look, I can't speak throughout history. I'm not a historian within that way. But what I can say is that they were really, really, really well off, really wealthy people who were the Sahaba people who lived and were there at the time of the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam, And if they had existed today, they would have been amongst the richest people on the planet, literal billionaires, yeah. right? We're talking about people like Uthman ibn Affan, who he was so, so rich and he ended up giving away most of his wealth to charity. But there's an interesting point there that people say, well, look at him, you know, he gave away most of his wealth and he was so, so rich beforehand. But Uthman has wealth actually still exists today hmm. in the form of a wok, which is an endowment, right? So yeah. it's a it's a fund which is invested and it still exists there in Makkah. So originally it was invested into a well, which was by Makkah and that wealth still continues and persists to this day. And it's used to build most of the buildings around Makkah at the moment. A lot of the hotels are built up using this fund. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just this idea that the wealth wasn't given away. It was actually used in a smart strategic ways and it was maintained and actually grown significantly over time to do better. So, you know, there were very, very, very wealthy people Mm -hmm. at the birth of Islam, and they didn't just throw it away and just give it away and then live their whole lives in poverty. They actually could make smart decisions with it to benefit not just themselves, but also the ummah as a whole. And I think that was something that really blew me away when I found that out. Okay, so there's not necessarily this idea that wealth can be evil, but it can also be productive and used as a tool for doing good. Yeah, absolutely. So you hit the nail on the head with that statement. So in Islamic finance in general, as Muslims, it's how we view money is that money must be used as a tool, Yeah. right? It must never be the end goal itself. It's a means to an end. It shouldn't be what you're striving for on its mm. own. Yeah. Okay. Now that we've touched on Islamic finance, Arib, if my understanding of it is correct, the very basis of Islamic finance is the Quranic prohibition on riba, on interest. Mm. What else do we need to know about wealth creation and wealth consumption within Islam? So I think if we go into what Islamic finance is, right? Yeah. It is the avoidance of a few things, right? Mm-hmm. Number one is the prohibition on riba or interest, which is this idea of making money on money. And there are a few verses in the Quran, specifically, I believe, in Surah Baqarah, but please forgive me if I'm wrong on that, which are specifically pertaining to the problems with interest. But then there's a few other things that Islamic finance dictates that we need to avoid. One of them is anything which is gharar, which is uncertainty, mm-hmm. yeah. right? So this is anything which is ambiguity or uncertainty in a contract or contractual terms. Mm. Yeah. Number two is speculation. Mm-hmm. The speculation is not allowed at all because it's very akin to gambling. And that's why things like day trading yeah. or looking to make a quick buck and that kind of thing are generally not seen as halal activities. Yeah. Because when you're investing in something which can fluctuate significantly in a short amount of time and you're looking to make significant money in that point in time, 
what you're really doing is the asset is its actual value is being controlled by things outside of just its value alone. It could be that Elon Musk puts out a tweet about Bitcoin one day and the price soars, or he could be seen smoking something on the Joe Rogan podcast and mm. the price plummets mm. the next day, mm. right? So it's really, really up to chance. And there's a big, big speculative activity going on there. And the fourth thing is what our Mufti Faraz Adam likes to call God consciousness or trying to avoid specific haram activities, which are obvious things forbidden in Islam, like alcohol, pork, gambling, explicit content, all that kind of thing. If a business, for example, is making significant revenue from any of those things, then it's best not to invest in that. So those are kind of the four kind of fundamentals of Islamic finance that you want to avoid. Mm -hmm. Interest, uncertainty, speculation, and these haram activities are basically what Islamic finance is all about. I've gotten into a lot of conversations with people who are like, why is interest haram? And there's quite a few things that you can talk about there. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're looking for the wisdom into it, you can talk about how it's very, very exploitative of individuals and how it can contribute to an exploitative system overall. There's all kinds of things seeking for the wisdom of it. But ultimately, I think what you have to understand as a Muslim is it's haram because in the Quran, it says it's haram and it's forbidden. And we can sit and ponder about the wisdom behind it. But ultimately, Allah doesn't have to give us a reason for things. And that's kind of the point of faith. Yeah. So, Arib, given that Islam is relatively clear on the stuff that's permissible or halal and the stuff that's forbidden or haram, I have a small thought experiment. And again, keeping in mind, we realize you're not an Islamic scholar and we don't want to give our listeners the impression that you are an Islamic scholar, but it'll be just fun to hear your opinion on this question. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. So, modern day critics of billionaires and corporations say (laughs) that these people and these companies are only able to achieve what they have through exploitation and avoidance of responsibilities. So, either not paying their taxes or moving their wealth to offshore bank accounts so they don't have to meet any sort of legal responsibilities to their wealth. So, for example, Amazon pays its workers so little that thousands of them have to rely on food stamps, on Medicaid, on public housing in order to survive. Mm. And there Mm. have even been allegations that they force employees to meet quotas so much so that those employees end up having to skip bathroom breaks and pee in bottles or poop in bags. Oh, my God. We have companies (laughs) like Apple, Gap, Nike, Abercrombie & Fitch, Samsung, BMW, A bunch of others who have all some way or another been accused of using forced labor. And although some of them have denied this, some also haven't denied this. We have billionaires who donate to candidates in ways that sound and look an awful lot like bribery, like corruption. But in doing so, these billionaires are able to help formulate policy that favors them, whether in tax policy and what their government spends on, whether it's money for schools, roads, hospitals, or other public services. Mm. And I think in the UK, there was a study done by researchers at Warwick and LSE, which found that the ultra-rich, people making more than £10 million a year, were paying a lower effective tax rate than someone earning £30,000 a year. Mm. And so given all of this, if the premise holds true, Arib, that you cannot be a billionaire without cheating or exploitation... Does it necessarily mean that being a billionaire is haram within Islam? 
Is it possible to be a billionaire in a halal way? So if we take the premise that indeed, in order to amass that much wealth in a Western capitalist society, where you know there are a certain amount of tax which is levied on you, and the only way to do that is through offshore accounts and tax avoidance and all these other crazy things that we see people doing in big companies and politicians doing, then absolutely it is haram to break the law. Right to break the law of the land that you're living in in order to amass that wealth, then yes, that is not correct. Right now, that's if we take that statement to be true, and if you really think that okay, it's impossible to amass a fortune of that size without breaking the law in any way, then yeah, sure. But if not, right, if you can amass that wealth without breaking the law, if there is a way of doing that legitimately, then no, there's nothing wrong with that. However, I think it goes back to the idea about hoarding wealth.、Mm-hmm. Right and what that looks like. So again, this is a hot topic in Islam. What is defined as hoarding wealth? Scholars have debated this for a long, long time. With some saying that if you are amassing wealth beyond what you actually need, even if it is a tiny amount, so you know you have a certain amount that you need to pay your bills, pay for your family, save for your retirement, maybe to give it to your kids, all that kind of thing. And if you have anything above that, then that's seen as hoarding,、mm-hmm. right? Which is highly frowned upon. Yeah. But however, that is not the majority opinion. It's、uh, more scholars believe that any wealth where you've paid zakatan, yeah, that acts as a form of purification、mm-hmm. of that wealth. So it's okay to keep that. Right. So my personal view is that it's incumbent upon a person to meet their basic responsibilities,、mm-hmm. and there's nothing wrong with saving and investing for a defined purpose in the future.、Yeah. Mm-hmm. However, as we said before, if the aim is that you're just trying to get the rich for the sake of getting rich. Then that can become a serious issue, which can lead to all kinds of spiraling activities. And a famous example is the former CEO of McKinsey, Rajat Gupta.、Mm-hmm. You might know this story quite well. So he was born in Kolkata from very, very poor means. He was orphaned at a very young age. He literally came from nothing, and yet he worked his way up at one of the biggest companies in the world to become a multimillionaire.、Yeah. He was worth a hundred million when you know he got to the very top, and he was invited onto the boards of all kinds of companies, including Goldman Sachs.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, friends of Rajat Gupta's would often say that yes, he amassed so much wealth, but there was something different within him, in that he was never happy. He always wanted to get to the next step. He wanted to leave the hundred million club or the central million club, whatever you want to call it,、mm-hmm. and move to the billionaires club. Yeah. That's what he wanted to do. And it was at this point where the financial crisis had just happened in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Goldman Sachs was in serious, serious trouble, and Warren Buffett had a call with the board of directors. And Warren Buffett, one of the most successful investors in the world, and he said, "I'm going to bail Goldman Sachs out. I'm going to invest a certain amount into Goldman to bail you out, and that's going to save Goldman Sachs." Rajat Gupta heard this because he was on the call, and this was a completely confidential. It wasn't market information, and he made a quick call to his friend, who was a hedge fund, who bought up a bunch of shares of Goldman Sachs when they were priced very low, and they made a few million when the announcement was made. Goldman was going to be saved, and its share price increased right after the announcement. Yeah, he started to do this quite a few times using this insider information until he was caught because it became quite obvious what he was doing.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's crazy because to any kind of normal person, you'd say, "Okay, a hundred million. Why would you put all of that on the line? Why would you risk it all
to just get to the next level because you'll think, okay, I've already made everything that I would need, right? It's, it's enough that your family, your children, your children's children, yeah. those children's children should be happy, right? But why would you risk it all? Yeah. So that's what happens, right? That is the danger of greed and where it can take you. But I think the craziest lesson for me was that when he was let out of prison, because he did serve time for this, mm-hmm. Right. And he did this interview with the New York Times about what lesson did you learn from all this? What was your biggest takeaway? And his takeaway was don't get attached to anything, whether it's your reputation, whether it's your family, whether it's your friends, whatever. It can all be lost in the blink of an eye. Oh, wow. And I heard that and I just thought that was the absolute worst takeaway that you could have gotten from your whole experience. That's crazy. Yeah right? Reputation is invaluable. Your family and friends are invaluable. Your happiness is invaluable. Yeah. Yeah. And your best shot at keeping those things is for anyone, right? It doesn't matter whether you're a millionaire, billionaire, just, you know, a normal person living within their means. There are things that are never worth the risk, no matter what yeah. the gain to be made is. And having that in your mind constantly, knowing that there are things that you're never going to risk, that can be a really, really good way for whether you're a Muslim or non-Muslim, of keeping greed, keeping arrogance, keeping that pride out of your heart from what you're doing, right? Just knowing that there are things that are never worth the risk, whatever you're doing, and then you won't kind of fall into that trap. Um, Sorry if that was a bit of a side note, but I thought it was an interesting story to share. No, that was really helpful in illustrating your point. I guess also, just for the sake of the listener, this gets lost on a lot of people, I think, but the fact is being a billionaire Mm. means so much more than being a millionaire because... If you made $5,000 every day from the time that Christopher Columbus sailed to the Americas, this was in like the 1400s, till today, you still would not be a billionaire. Mm. I think the math checks out at something like somewhere in the $900 million or something. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is not taking into account inflation and your money growing by 3% yeah. every year or whatever. Yeah. And I guess that leads me to the next question. Mm. When it comes to Islamic view of wealth taxation and wealth redistribution, what is it trying to achieve? What does it hope to solve? What lessons does it try to impart? Because, for example, when we talk about zakat, Arib, yeah, it's a flat tax rate of two something percent, right? Yeah, two point five percent on the majority of the assets. Yeah, yeah, there you go. And so, is that meant simply to help Muslims purify their wealth, or is it actually in some form or another? a tool of Islamic public policy to solve homelessness, to solve poverty, hunger. But absolutely, right? So this is something I've been learning a lot more about since Kestrel has partnered with National Zakat Foundation here in the UK. Mm-hmm. They are the only zakat provider which provides exclusively to British Muslims. Mm. So British Muslims who are in need, that impoverished group, which we talked about earlier. So they're the only ones who do that specifically. I think before I got into this space, I had this idea that zakat is a kind of charity. Yeah right? Similar to Sadqa. But in reality, it's very, very different. Yeah. So what is Zakat? Zakat is the third pillar of Islam, yeah. right? And the basis behind it is that it's a tax that's levied on any wealth that a Muslim possesses as long as it's over a certain threshold, which is called Nisab, right? So as long as you have wealth beyond a certain value, and it's some amount of gold or silver is used to determine that threshold, it's known as Nisab. As long as you have over that, then it's incumbent on every Muslim to pay that. Right, as long as they are of age and they within their mental faculties and all that kind of thing. Yeah. It's not a charity for a couple of reasons. Mm-hmm. 
First, it's a tax levied on wealth and is it more seen as welfare. Yeah, Absolutely, I do agree with that point, is that it's a tax on those who can afford it to help resolve wealth inequalities and extreme poverty in Muslim societies specifically. There's always been some debate as to, okay, is the card meant for Muslims or can it go to non-Muslims as well? Mm-hmm. Whilst that debate is there, for the most part, the consensus is it's different from sadqa or general charity, which can go to anyone who's in need. Mm-hmm. To go towards Muslims for this idea for when there was a great society, that kind of state which was run by Sharia law, that was the purpose of Zakat. And it can be a really, really powerful tool when used properly, right? Yeah. Which is why I'm genuinely, but even before the partnership, such an advocate for the National Zakat Foundation, because you can see the impact it can have in your home country. Mm. It's Muslims in the UK using it in their home country rather than sending it abroad, which can be really, really good, but often you can lose transparency. Yeah. There was a study done by Oxfam a few years ago, I believe it was 2014, which saw the total zakat offered from just a few countries, Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, Malaysia, Qatar, and Yemen. That makes up about 17% of the world Muslim population in those countries alone. They paid 5.7 billion US dollars in zakat in one year alone. But it kind of also highlights why a billion is such a huge amount for one person to own, right? When five countries are pulling that all together from their zakat payment in one year, right? Yeah. Mm. But the point is 5.7 billion can do a huge, huge amount to service that 20% of inequality that Muslims are facing around the world if it is used in a proper manner and a proper fashion and truly, truly efficiently. Yeah. So it's really that religious obligation that we all have. And it's less of a charity and more of an act of worship in and of itself. Being the third pillar of Islam and paying that two and a half percent. Right. And again, that purification activity. So yes, it is a form of purifying your wealth as well. That's an added benefit of it. But the way it was explained to me when I was speaking with many of the directors at National Zagat Foundation is that you should view that two and a half percent of your wealth as never yours. It was never yours to begin with. It's something that you have to give up as a Muslim mm. for your wealth to be considered pure and equitable and fair and, and earned in a and spent in a halal mass. It's something that you have to do. So kind of wrapping my head around that zakat is not exactly charity. It's something beyond that. It's about helping the ummah in its purest form, which you know kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, right? Your responsibility, if you have a certain skill of amassing wealth without getting corrupted by it, then you can help and serve the ummah and that's the kajaria. Zagat is like this set in stone method of doing that for anyone who mm. who is able to do it. So yeah, it's a really beautiful concept. Hmm. I guess just to bring the discussion to a wrap, I want to lead more to a philosophical discussion. Yeah. So I'm sure you guys have heard this scenario. If you see a person drowning, you're walking along a path or whatever, and then there's a body of water and you see there's someone drowning Mm. and you are able to save that person. You just happen to have a rope and you have what it takes to save that person's life. Do you think that there is a moral duty to save that person? Not just that you have to save that person, but if you don't save that person, you are morally responsible for them drowning. So, I mean, it's interesting you ask this question because I'm actually a qualified lifeguard. So I kind of do have a duty. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> oh, the odds of that. It's, I know. It's, if it were me, yeah, it's more a responsibility for me. So I don't know if I can answer this independently. But no, no, leaving that aside, look, I, I do feel that it is a responsibility incumbent on you if you have the ability to do it without putting yourself in danger. I think that's a key thing, right? This is coming again from my life-saving training. As long as you're not putting yourself into serious danger by helping that person, then absolutely you do have a responsibility to help them. So again, that comes down to the basis of zakat, that 
Yes, the card is an obligation upon you yeah. as long as you have over a certain threshold of wealth because paying that zakat is not going to impact you and your livelihood in some way. If you don't have above that threshold of wealth, then it's not incumbent on you. Yeah. So it's this kind of an obligation, but there are conditions to it. Yeah. So if you see what I mean. So I think, yes, you do have an obligation, but that obligation is conditional upon, look, if the rope is like broken and you have to jump in there and save them, but there's clearly a shark which is in there and is going to kill you both, then <laughs> there's not really much good to be going in there and getting eaten as well. Yeah. yeah. That's my take on that. Okay, well, so the crux of the question, I guess for me is, okay, so beyond just having the duty to save this person or not, it's whether you are morally responsible for this person drowning if you don't save them. So, okay, let me put this in another way. Arib, say someone has become a billionaire mm. and they decide to cash out of their business or they decide to put all of it into a fixed deposit where yeah. they earn 3% on their money every year. And they just decide to live the rest of their life on that returns in perpetuity mm. without ensuring that that money goes to any particular yeah. cause or issue or whatever. Is that morally above board? Is that morally not so okay? What do you think about that sort of question? So interesting, interesting spin on it. Okay, so setting the scene, someone is really, really rich, a kind of Scrooge type figure. He's just sitting on his wealth and hoarding it literally for no other reason, just so that he can say that he's a billionaire. Yeah. From a non-Islamic perspective, if they're paying their taxes and all that, then obviously that is okay and that is allowed. From an Islamic perspective, you know, we talked about this concept of greed and how dangerous it can be mm -hmm. and how that idea of hoarding wealth can be very, very dangerous in that way. And it's kind of the opposite of the concept of the Sadiqajariya in that when you die, you can't take that wealth with you. Yeah, That's just going to be sit out there not doing anything. Yeah, And that wealth could be something that saves you in the afterlife. If it's going towards an endowment, which is opening up an orphanage or building a mosque or feeding poor people forever, or like literally look at Uthman Radiyallahu where his wealth exists today in an endowment that is billions. And that's 1,400 years after he's gone. Like SubhanAllah, that's insane. Imagine any of us being able to achieve anything close to that with our wealth, that it's continuing to get reward for you long, long after you're gone. Look, I think the thing is hoarding wealth and greed is a very, very normal human reaction, but it's also a very, very dangerous thing. And you don't have to be religious or to be a Muslim to be able to acknowledge that. Yeah. There was the example of Rajat Gupta that we gave earlier, but very similar, similar example with Bernie Madoff. Yeah. He did a very, very similar kind of thing, a much more famous example, maybe, of these people who they are already set and their families are set and they won't have anything else they could ever want for in life. And what do they want to do? They just want to get even richer for no apparent reason, right? And that's a very dangerous thing. Yeah to let money control you in such a way. And I think ultimately that's what, for me, the beauty of Islam is all about. It's acknowledging that there are so many things in this world that can control you, yeah. that you can never truly be free, whether it's your money, whether it's your phone, whether it's some kind of silly mobile game that you're addicted to, right? These are things that are controlling you. Yeah. And Islam is saying, don't be a slave to anything else except the will of God. Yeah. Right. That is what you are submitting to. And that is the ultimate thing and the only thing worth devoting yourself to and devoting your time to. And it's that kind of way of life of living towards. And that's ultimately all that matters. So as long as you are in control of your money and it's not in control of you, mm. and that's ultimately what I think we all have to work towards. And to a certain extent, I suppose that's what your aim is for the Kestrel app, right? Like to help Muslims invest and save up. 
Exactly. I mean, for, for so long as Muslims, especially in the UK, we've just had no idea what is going on, right? We're just kind of living our lives, trying to amass some wealth, sticking it into an account which gets eroded away by inflation because we don't want to generate interest on it. Mm. Suddenly, we've got to pay way too much for a wedding. Suddenly, you have to think about a house deposit. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're stuck paying this mortgage for 20, 25, 30 years, and then sending kids to school. You're not. There's no planning, right? There's basic financial literacy, which is just gone out the window and then islamic financial literacy freezes us even further so with castro it's about helping them to achieve these goals and giving them the knowledge to feel like they're taking control of their finances for the first time in ways that hopefully inshallah can really influence generations that hopefully if people can start to do this now then they can pass on these lessons to their children and their children's children and that's how we make the step change in the future for the ummah as a whole and how we start to address that wealth inequality Thank you so much, Arif, for joining us on the show today. We appreciate your insight and thoughts on no today's problem. topic. Thank you for having yes. me. And of course, happy Ramadan, happy fasting, oh. happy yeah, of course. celebrating all yeah. of that. Yeah, same to you guys, same to you guys. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the He Says, She Says, They Say podcast. The song for our show is called Back in the Bucket by H.H. the Archduke. Special thanks to Iswan Zakaria of Iswan and Partners for introducing us to our guest today. If you guys have any suggestions or requests for topics we should talk about on our show, you can reach us on Twitter at underscore or via email at info at Till next time.